This is the Radio Bible Class, and I'm your host, Tim Carter. We welcome to our Bible study as a radio Bible class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with the message that Jesus is alive today. Now today's lesson is titled, How the Mighty Have Fallen. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 1. But before we start our lesson today, Word Talking could use your support. Now, playing music on the radio may sound simple, but actually it's quite costly due to publishing rights and royalties. And before that first song was ever played, there's utility bills and tower rental fees and maintenance and so forth. We need people just like you to help with the tax-deductible gifts. So won't you do that today? You can do that by calling us at 601-483-8648, and there they can take your information safely and securely over the phone, or mail us your gift to Word Talk, Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi, 39304. Now, your gift to Word Talk, Inc. is IRS-approved as a 501c3 tax-exempt ministry. Now, your contribution is never used for salaries or managerial purposes, but 100% of it goes to the expense providing the good news of Jesus Christ to our listening area. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, if you'd like to go back and listen to a previous lesson, you can do that by going to our podcast website. That's radiobibleclass.podbean.com. Again, that's radiobibleclass.podbean.com. Also, you can catch us wherever you consume your podcast, whether that's Spotify or Amazon or wherever. We're there, too. Go search for WMER space Radio Bible Class with no space in between Radio Bible Class. Well, today we pick back up and we start now into a new chapter. We start with 2 Samuel. We just finished a couple of weeks ago 1 Samuel. Now we're picking back up in 2 Samuel. First thing I want you to understand, though, when this book was written, there was no 1 and 2 Samuel. So you're going to see today that in chapter 31 in 1 Samuel, we saw the death of Saul. And if you missed that lesson, go back to radiobibleclass.podbean.com and pick it up. But today we're going to look at 2 Samuel, and the title is How the Mighty Have Fallen. How the death of Saul has happened, and Jonathan and his sons, and David finds out about that death. But as I said in the Hebrew Bible, the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel aren't separated, which is why we pick back up with the death of Saul just like nothing happened between the 1 and 2 Samuel. Right from the start, we find that there's an apparent discrepancy, though, concerning the account of Saul's death. And today we're going to look deep at that. We looked at how the Bible said that Saul died in 1 Samuel chapter 31. But today we're going to look at it in 2 Samuel first as this eyewitness now tells David how he died. The other thing I want you to see, and probably what you don't know, you probably heard the phrase, though, how the mighty have fallen. And that phrase actually comes from the Bible. We're going to see that today in this chapter. But what you might find interesting today Maybe surprising is that David taught Israel to sing this song, a laminate of one of his greatest enemies, King Saul, who tried to kill him. David writes a song and he has the nation of Israel learn it. Well, I have a lot to cover today, so let's just jump right in. Turn with me to the second book of Samuel, 2 Samuel. We'll start in chapter 1, reading out of verse 1. I'll be reading out of the ESV. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziglag. 
And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage to him. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his sons, Jonathan, are also dead. And then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilbo, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered him, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head, and I took the amulet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to you, my Lord. And we'll stop right there for now. Well, if you've been following us, you know this does not sound like what happened in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. Why? Because in 1 Samuel, it ends with the details of Saul being wounded in battle, similar to what he said here, but he asked his arm bearer to finish him. He said, finish me off so I won't fall into the hands of the Philistine. But the arm bearer wouldn't do it. And so he fell on his sword, and then at that point, his arm bearer killed himself as well. Now, 2 Samuel right here begins with the testimony of a young man who has come upon Saul. And Saul is wounded. He's mortally wounded. And he says that Saul asked him to finish him off, to kill him. And so he did so. So the first question is, did Saul fall on a sword or did the young man finish him off as he said? Because of the contradiction between these two chapters, most biblical scholars say this young man was lying. And if he was lying, his plan to make himself more desirable and to be rewarded by David backfired on him. Because because of his testimony, we're going to see that he gets executed for what he said. Now, most commentators, like I say, say that he's lying. Some say that the young man told the truth and that it wasn't completely right on the chapter 31. Well, I'm kind of in the middle of the fence. I say that it could possibly be that both are correct. Think about it for a minute. In the confusion and the panic that's going on, the mayhem of war that's going on, could it be that Saul was critically wounded like we read in chapter 31? And that he did fall on his sword, and that his arm bearer saw that, thinking that Saul was dead, did the same thing. But then, is it possible that Saul didn't really die immediately? So this unnamed man that we just read about that came to David, came along, he did see Saul, Saul did ask him, and at the very least... You know, we know that the man was there. Why? Because he has his crown and he has his armband. And that is very strong evidence that he was telling somewhat of the truth, if not the whole truth. This doesn't mean that chapter 31 was wrong. It just means that it's a different perspective and it could have very well happened. I've gotten ahead of myself. There's really two points I want to point out today. One is David does learn of Saul's death. Right, I need to do this because the note takers will send me a note saying, hey, you had this outline, you didn't follow it. 
So David learns of Saul's death, and under that, we're going to see four points. That David hears the news, the Amalekite tells a story, which we've kind of been talking about, and now, we, in just a minute, we're going to see David's reaction and David's orders. And then there'll be a second point I want to point out, is the song that David teaches to the nation of Israel. David writes a song for Saul and Jonathan. So back to our first point, David learns of Saul's death. Well, David's now heard this. He's asked this man that comes to him and tells him the story. Where are you from? Tell me what you know. And let's look at David's reaction. So this young man has told his story. And he tells about how he went ahead and finished Saul off. Saul was already dying. So let's look how David reacts. Looked at verse 11 with me. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. Now that was a common thing, a tradition that they did back in that day. That was a sign of grievance. That was a sign of, of ultimate sorrow. And that, so they tear their clothes as they hear of, of Saul's death and Jonathan's death. Now look at verse 12. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And then David said to the young man who told him, Where did you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. And David said, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? So let's stop right there for now. As I said earlier, the scholars say that this young man's lying, and he's doing it because, remember, David has been on the run for Saul for over 10 years. For 10 years, Saul has sought after him and tried to kill him. Now, the last two years, he's been living in the enemy's camp. He's been living down with the Philistines, so Saul hadn't been after him. But everyone knew that Saul wanted to kill David. As a matter of fact, commentators say that Saul had a bounty on his head. If you will help me capture David and kill him, I will reward you for that. And that's not uncommon because remember when David killed Goliath, what did Saul do? Saul had said he would give a hand in marriage to his daughter and that he, you would be a rich man and you would be at the king's table. So having a reward out for David was no surprise. Commentators say that this young man was hoping that David would give him a reward he knows about the battle between King Saul trying to kill him. He thinks David's going to like him because he's done him a favor and he's killed him. But we see right here, I want to go back and show you a statement that David makes that David's not happy about this. Matter of fact, David is very sorrowful. We saw that when he ripped his clothes. But look what he says. Verse 14, David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now, the Lord's anointed has been a very instrumental thing for David. How many times has David had an opportunity to kill Saul? But he said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Yet this man has just testified that he killed Saul, that he finished Saul off. Now, Saul asked for it, but he finished Saul off. He didn't give Saul an opportunity to be healed or taken to a medic, to try to be saved. He finished him off. And so after David gets over all his mourning for the rest of the day, he goes back to him. He says, how is it you're not afraid to raise your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Here's another thing I want you to think about. In verse 13, he identifies himself as a Malachite. 
Now, if we do take the Malachite story as being true, then this is a really chilling statement. I mean, if you remember back in 1 Samuel, one of the first things that God told King Saul to do through the prophet of Samuel was to go and destroy the Malachites. For over 400 years, he's allowed them an opportunity to make repentance for what they did against the nation of Israel, how they took over and and killed people from the nation of Israel. And now judgment comes and he tells King Saul to go and wipe out the Malachites. Not one hair to be left alive. But what did King Saul do? King Saul didn't listen to him. King Saul saved King Ahab, the king of the Malachites. He also kept the best stock of the flocks and of the cattle. And then, obviously, we saw David, when he had to go battle back in chapter 28 and 29, he was battling the Malachites who had come and raided his house and took his family. So, obviously, King Saul did not kill all the Malachites that God told him to do. And so, don't you find it ironic, almost a unique judgment from God, that if he's not lying, that the judgment comes that an Amalekite comes and kills King Saul. Saul, who was commanded by God, failed to do what he was supposed to do, and an Amalekite brings a bitter end to his life. What a tragedy. After David's sorrow, and most of his sorrow really wasn't for Saul, I don't believe. I think it was for Jonathan. We're going to dive into that in a minute. What does he do? He comes back and he asks questions to make sure the story is correct. And if this guy was lying, and this is the reason why I don't think he was lying, the next thing that David's going to say would make him recant his story, and we don't see that in the Bible. Look at verse 15 with me. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. You may go, Tim, well, first of all, wait, hold on a second. I mean, David was asking questions like, where are you from? He may have thought that he was about to be rewarded for what he did. But he asked, how is it you're not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? That should have been the first signal. Probably his attitude changed as well. And I think if he was lying, if the story wasn't true, he'd have probably been like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, hey, I'm just kidding. I really didn't do that. This is the stuff I found after I found him dead. He was already dead. I mean, you think about it. If you were to go brag to one of your friends about something you did, maybe about something that wasn't supposed to be done, maybe they decide to call the law on you because you shouldn't have done it, guess what? When the law shows up, you're going to be going, hey, I was just kidding. You would recant your story. But he doesn't recant his story when he hears that David sends the command to execute him. He could have easily spoke up right then and said, whoa, stop. The Bible doesn't tell us that, though. But then David says out loud to justify his order so everyone hears it. He says, your blood is on your own head. For out of your own mouth, you testified against yourself. Well, some of you might go, well, Tim, hold on a second. There was a war going on. I mean, he was already dead. Saul was near death by his story. Saul asked the Malachite to kill him. How can David justify doing this? First of all, when we go to war, I think the Bible teaches us that it is a self-defense. The only reason why we kill is because of self-defense. See, it's God's job to end life, not ours. 
And this is even more so true on the Lord's anointing. Every life matters. Every human life matters, and we should not take life. But it's even truer when the ministers and the Lord's anointed, the Bible teaches us that we don't touch the Lord's anointed. All of this reminds me of a story that we would sing in kids' church or as my children were growing up. It's a very simple song. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. And then we go, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. And what does it say? Be careful, little tongue, what you say. It would have been good for this man, this Amalekite, to listen to that simple song. Probably wasn't sung back then, so he wouldn't have known it. But be careful what you say. We can learn from that. Be careful what you see. Be careful what you hear. Be careful what you say, because what you say you will be held accountable for. And so right here we see that David takes justice for the Lord, and he has him executed. Well, verses 17 through 27 are the song that David wrote about how the mighty have fallen. And I want to dive into it a little bit because you might go, Tim, well, it's a song. You know, we know about this is now history. Is it important? Yes, it's important, especially in two places I want you to see, right? And so let's look at the song real quick and let me extract a couple of things I want to teach you out of it. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he, and he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashire. Now, the book of Jashire is only mentioned a couple of times in the Bible, and it's not in the Bible. There is no book of Jashire if you flip through the Bible. So we think this was just a book that was written back in that day that had songs similar to Psalm that was written down. And this would have been a song that was in Jashire, the book of Jashire. Now, I'm not going to read every single verse of this song, but I do want to highlight a couple of verses. The first one I want you to look at, look at verse 21 with me real quick. David curses Mount Gilboa. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offering. For the shields of the mighty was defiled, and the shields of Saul, night anointed with oil. So first of all, what he says, he says, I don't want there to be any more rain or dew to ever be on the Mount Gilboa. To this day, the commentators say that the slopes of Mount Goa remain bald, so to speak. There's no vegetation there. In the recent years, though, the Jewish National Fund has not successfully yet made this happen, but they've been planting trees hoping to change the lack of vegetation that's on Mount Gilboa. But all the way back to David, David cursed this, and today there's very little vegetation there. It's bald. And the second thing you see in that verse is that he says Saul's a shield was not anointed with oil. What they would do is they put oil on the shield so if they was hit with a sword, it was harder to penetrate it. It would deflect off. But a verse I want to spend a little more time in because I'm already starting to run out of time is verse 26. I want you to look down at verse 26 with me. There's controversy about the interpretation where he says that he grieves for Jonathan. Read this verse with me real quick. Jonathan lies slain on your high palaces. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. This very verse describes the deep grief that David felt for his best friend, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan was older than him, some say as much as 10 years, 15 years older than him. But the two of them were best friends, and we saw that as we studied in 1 Samuel. But the problem and the reason why I want to point this out 
And you might go, well, Tim, Jonathan's dead, David's dead. Why does this even really matter? Because there are liberal theologians today that are trying to twist this verse. They're trying to hijack this and say that it promotes homosexuality and that this proves that David and Jonathan had a homosexual relationship. We can show you, and I'm about to, that they did not. What I want you to see is right there when he uses the word love in this verse, it is the word havaha, which describes a strong love experience between family and friends. You know, it's also used to describe the love of God towards man. In Deuteronomy 10, 15, Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved you, avaha. He loved them. Leviticus 19, 18, Love, avaha, your neighbor as yourself. The word avaha is never used in the Bible to describe a sexual relationship, a sexual behavior. Even in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is clearly about homosexual behavior, the word used there is yada, which means to know in an intimate way. That word yada is never used to describe the relationship that was there between Jonathan and David all through 1 Samuel or here. You may have heard me talk about the Septuagint before. That is where the Hebrew was translated over to Greek. And the Greeks had four words for love. They had phila, which means brotherly love. That's where we get the word Philadelphia comes from. It's the city of brotherly love. Stora, which means family love. Eros, which is erotic or romantic love. That would be the word that would be used here, but that's not what's used. The word that is used here in the Greek is agape. And that is the highest and purest form of love from God or for God. So anyhow, what he's saying here in this song is that it is the highest, purest form of love, and it's not an erotic love. So to net all this out, David is simply saying that he had a love for Jonathan, which was pure. It was a pure form of love from God that surpassed any romantic, any sexual type of love. And it's sad that there are people that are trying to twist the Bible, that have taken the word love and sexualized it, and in trying to use it in our culture and bring that into the church today, saying that the Bible had someone that we talk about that had a homosexual relationship, which is not true. To me, it's sad that we live in a society today where a man and another man can't have a relationship with people trying to turn it into some sexual nature. Or a woman and a woman trying to make it into some sexual nature. There is a deep bond that can happen between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. And it doesn't have to be sexual in nature. It can be a genuine, a non-sexual friendship and a deep love that is knit together. I'm out of time, so I'm going to move on. But I spent a little time here because I thought it was important to try to take the liberal side of the world that is trying to encroach into the church and use this verse, which is one of the verses that the homosexuals use. And the last thing I want you to notice in this lamentation is in verse 19 and verse 25 and verse 27. He says, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights, how the mighty have fallen. Then in verse 25, in the very beginning, it says, How the mighty have fallen in battle. And then in verse 27, it says, How the mighty have fallen. What David is saying here is a king, a mighty man. Jonathan, who was an heir to the throne, a mighty man, have fallen in battle. 
And it might make you want to ask. It makes me stop and think as I was preparing for this lesson, what brings mighty men and women down? What causes them to fall? You think about all the mighty people, the presidents, the senators, the governors, people that we know that hold a esteemed place, how they have fallen from grace. What makes them do that? Well, if we look at Saul and we answer it through the life of Saul, I think the one little thing that allowed Saul to become a very big thing that brought him down was that Saul let the little things in life. He overlooked them. He was a 90% man. He did what the Lord said 90% of the time, just like the Malachites. When he was told to go and wipe them out, he didn't. He saved King Ahab. He saved the flocks of the sheep and, and of the cattle. And then apparently other Amalekites. And right here we see that an Amalekite brings judgment to Saul and finishes him off. And here's what I want you to capture out of that. You go, well, Tim, King Saul and the Amalekites, they don't really apply to me. Yes, they do. The Amalekite is a symbol of the flesh that we fight every day. What we would call our sinful nature. And if we allow that to rule, when we allow that to get away from us, when we don't die to ourselves and walk in the Spirit, guess what? We become like Saul. We become 90% of what God wants and 10% of our flesh. And it's those little things that eventually allow a big thing come to take us down. You know, the Bible says a lot of things about the potential nature of sinful things ruin us. And if we don't deal with this battle, then it will. Look at what Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the mind seeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. The life I live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. And in 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his bodies on that tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. I finished chapter 31 with a reflection of death. Here, I'd like to finish this lesson today with a reflection of our weakness. I'd like for you to stop and think about what is your greatest weakness? Tell a close person, a Jonathan, a spouse, a close friend, a confidant. Tell them that weakness and be aware of that. Bring awareness to that weakness. Turn it over to the Lord. Ask Him for help and have an accountability partner. See, when you bring into light the things you struggle with that are in the darkness, you disarm the power of those things that can control you. When you bring to light the things that you struggle with, the devil has no more power over you. Ephesians 5.11 says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Expose the weaknesses that you have so that the devil has no power over you. And have an accountability partner. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Right there, confess your sins to one another. Have someone that is a confidant that can help you expose that weakness in your life. So today I'd ask you, what is your weakness? And are you willing to give it to God? Let us pray. Dearly Father, we come before you today, Lord. We thank you for our time together. Lord, I pray right now that you would just open the hearts that have heard this message. Lord, let it fall on fertile soil. 
Lord, let the one that is listening right now that has a weakness that they've been struggling with, Lord, they're trying to follow you, but for whatever reason they have a weakness and they hide it in the darkness, Lord, let them bring it to light. Lord, the one that needs your strength right now, Lord, let them wake up every day and realize that they can walk with you. Lord, that they can die to themselves and say, Lord, you lead me. Make me more sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Lord, let me lay this weakness at your feet. Lord, send me an accountability partner that can help me walk the walk. And Lord, maybe there's one that doesn't know you today, Lord. I pray today would be the day. Lord, they would ask you to be Lord of their life. Lord, they would believe in their heart of your finished work. Lord, they would admit they're a sinner. They would believe in their heart and they would confess with their mouth that you are Lord. Lord, we thank you and we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.